Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. For all those dog lovers out there, we did a story about the type of food you're feeding your dog. The FDA has named 16 brands of dog food that have been linked to canine heart disease. The FDA isn't suggesting that pet owners stop feeding their dogs these brands just yet, but some vets are advising against grain-free foods. For more on this story, we spoke to Rachel Feltman. She's a science editor at Popular Science for what every pet owner should know. When we talk about grains in pet food, they've gotten a reputation for being filler and, and being something that our pets don't need or that can even make them sick. And it's true that some brands use so-called grains like potatoes, where those really are just useless filler. But the thing is that there are certain nutrients that dogs need that they can get from healthy grains. A lot of the times that is what is present in these kind of traditional dog foods. What the FDA is focused on are any kind of like boutique dog food, which is kind of a funny phrase to use, but anything that's from outside of these major long-standing manufacturers. They're looking at things that are grain-free, freshly prepared dog food. You know, we're starting to see startups where people can get dog food in the mail. Really anything that is new and comes from a small company is what the FDA is, is talking about here. Some of these foods are based with peas and lentils, as you said, potatoes. And the term that vets use for it is boutique, exotic ingredient, and grain-free. So BEG. So that's kind of a term that gets thrown around a lot, BEG foods. And as you were saying, you know, dogs need a certain amount of nutrition. There's very few dogs out there that have grain allergies. Gluten intolerance is really rare in dogs. There's only like one family of inbred Irish setters that is confirmed to have some of this stuff. So there is nothing to suggest that dogs can't have foods with traditional grains. So these are things that are small manufacturers, these boutique style foods. So the FDA hasn't said that you shouldn't stop feeding your dogs this just yet, but what's the correlation? How did this come to be? Why are they investigating these types of foods? It started with some anecdotal gathering of data from veterinarians who noticed and reported that they were seeing higher rates of this particular kind of heart disease, dilated cardiomyopathy, and they were seeing it in breeds that they didn't usually see it in. In purebreds, like in certain breeds like Great Danes and Doberman Pinschers, they have genetic links, you know, as many purebreeds have genetic links to some condition or other. But that around the country, at least a few of them started noticing that bulldogs and labs were coming in with these heart problems. And they also noticed that a lot of those patients were on grain-free diets, which is why the FDA started investigating about a year ago. Now, the thing is, for now, it's just a correlation. We see a rise in grain-free food, and we see a rise in these heart problems in dogs that didn't used to have them. But it could just be that grain-free food is getting more popular while something else is causing these heart conditions to increase. It could be that people who are likely to choose grain-free food for their dogs are likely to choose other kinds of products or lifestyles for their dogs that are having an impact. So for now, there's a connection, but we don't know that it's a cause. What should we be looking at when 
we buy dog food. There's a few different labels that we should be looking at. AAFCO compliant, I guess, uh, you know, they do animal feeding tests and they have like a lot of nutritional information on there. We should be looking for certain things like this to help decide which kind of dog food we're getting. A lot of people have started to associate over-processed dog food with being unhealthy. And, you know, it's true. There are probably lots of brands of dog food that are not great for your dog. But these large manufacturers have put in the kind of nutritional testing to know that dogs are receiving the balance of nutrients that they need. And especially if they've received those certifications you mentioned, then pet owners can feel confident that their pets are getting a balanced meal. And the issue with some of these newer brands and and newer options for dog food is just that the ingredients are often things that haven't traditionally been used in dog food. That might sound appealing to consumers because it looks more like the food they eat and that feels like a more luxurious thing to feed their dog. But we don't know how well dogs thrive eating those things. There's also a thing called the Pet Nutrition Alliance. They have a manufacturer report where they ask the manufacturers key questions about their methods and if they employ full-time nutritionists. I mean, those are things you should be looking for. And a lot of times there's just a lot of shiny marketing going on with this stuff. And sometimes just the good, boring, conventional stuff might be best for your dog. Rachel Feltman, science editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. There was a huge surge this year of people getting Ring doorbell cams, and you might have gotten one for the holidays. But Amazon's home security company, Ring, has made partnerships with local law enforcement all across the country. And the result is starting to look like an Amazon Ring police surveillance network. Amazon gives local police Ring products, the police encourage adoption of the Ring platform, and then people give police access to their doorbell cams. For more on this story, we spoke to Carolyn Haskins. She's a writer at Vice's Motherboard. So I obtained a memorandum of understanding and other contract documents between Ring, which is Amazon's home surveillance company, and the police department of Lakeland, Florida. And the memorandum of understanding requires uh, different things from the, the police department and from Ring. So Ring is required to provide access to this law enforcement neighborhood portal, which is basically an interactive map, and police can use it to see the approximate location of every Ring product in the town and request footage directly from those people. And Ring also has to give the police department 15 free doorbell surveillance cameras, and they also are obligated to offer this discount on Ring cameras based off of the number of people in the city that download neighbors. In exchange, in order to get access to this law enforcement portal and these free cameras, etc., There's a clause in this memorandum that requires police to, quote, encourage adoption, close quote, of Ring products. So basically, this means that it's a private public agreement between a public law enforcement agency and a private company like Ring. And the result is a completely privatized surveillance network that police have the ability to tap into. They do need permission from the people in order to get the footage, but the extra added step of legal protection from the warrant doesn't exist there. And it exists in this vague, unregulated space in terms of a privatized surveillance network that police have sort of this direct administrative access to. How are police expected to make this engagement with the local community? 
part of it is that they're supposed to tell people to download Neighbors and be explicit that if they download this app, then they could have a chance to get a certain ring product. And what certain police departments have done is they do other types of programs like raffles or giveaways and stuff like that in order to make people aware that these products exist. Um, And in terms of the free doorbell cameras, I mean, that's a pretty direct way for police to distribute um, these products from their own possession to people in their own community. This is so tightly coordinated that even what police officers say about Amazon's ring has to either be scripted or approved by the company themselves. Basically, if they're going to be making posts, say, announcing that they joined Neighbors or discussing their partnership in any way whatsoever, um, there has to be sort of email communication between police and Ring. And that's why another part of the partnership requires police to assign certain Ring-specific roles. So these roles, it includes a press coordinator, a social media manager, a community relations coordinator. And these are basically point people within the police department that are responsible for communicating about all things related to the ring partnership to the public. There is a campaign from a group called Fight for the Future, which is giving people the opportunity to reach out to local lawmakers and tell them that they don't want this partnership going on in their communities also. Ring's whole pitch to the public is that they would be making communities safer, but safer for whom? It's important to remember that these are cameras that are proliferating in private spaces. And I did a report a couple of months ago about behavior on Neighbors, which is, again, the Neighborhood Watch app. It operates a lot like Nextdoor, and racial profiling is extremely common on the app. And the app even encourages people to tag people as suspicious or strangers. And, you know, I mean, just given the reality of life in this country, a lot of these people are people of color. These are the people that are posted onto this app and people that posters are saying are suspicious or potentially dangerous. I mean, don't only just think about like the privacy concerns or these relationships with law enforcement. Think about what type of relationship you want to have with your community and whether these cameras are promoting that type of relationship. Carolyn Haskins, writer at Vice's Motherboard. Thank you very much for joining us. Where can people catch more of your stuff? Right. So you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Caroline H.A. underscore. And you can also follow Motherboard. It's Vice's tech site, which is just at Motherboard on Twitter. Thank you, Caroline. Thanks for having me. Finally, for this week, we talk about one of the most compelling UFO cases in modern history, the Nimitz UFO Encounters. And while we already know how the Nimitz encountered a tic-tac-shaped aerial vehicle, we're hearing from other witnesses to the event. These witness accounts say that shortly after that encounter, there was a rush to turn over all the data concerning the UFO sighting, and that two men quickly departed with all that relevant data. To hear more about what we learned from these other Nimitz witnesses, we spoke to Tim McMillan, contributor to Popular Mechanics. In November 2004, the Strike Carrier Group 11, the Nimitz Carrier Group, was undergoing workups before pre-deployment. They also had a host of new technology on board they were working the kinks out with. Very shortly after going underway in the radar center, they started getting very peculiar radar returns, strange returns on their scopes. Some of these systems were brand new, like the Spy 1 Bravo radar system. And so initially they thought they were ghost or clutter 
meaning the system's malfunctioning. And I was able to speak to both the, the people who were observing those on the scopes and then the guy whose job, the one person on the USS Princeton whose job it was to make sure those things were working properly. So they took the systems down, put them back up, and these contacts were clearer and still there. They were better than they were before. And they were just peculiar. They were moving, they were going up and down from 80,000 feet to 60,000 feet to 30,000 feet very rapidly, according to the systems. And they were moving in groups of 10 at a time at roughly around 100 knots. So very slow, slower than a fixed wing aircraft should be cruising. After this went on for about a week, Kevin Day, who's the chief combat controller inside the USS Princeton, which is the missile cruiser ship. He told me he takes the plane to the fight. He controls the airspace around the group. It's his job. He was able to convince his commander that he felt like these objects needed to be investigated. They happened to have two F-18s going up that day for an exercise. And so he was able to take control, which means direct them in to try to locate one of these objects. And that brings us to mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. squadron commander, David Fravor, who went out there. Yes. And then mm -hmm. we have this summary of what he saw. What he mm -hmm. saw was this anomalous aerial vehicle, as they describe it. And it descended very rapidly from approximately 60,000 feet to about 50 feet in a matter of seconds. And he reported that it was an elongated egg or a tic-tac shape, solid white, smooth with no edges. And it was making all of these crazy twists and turns in the air, something that they hadn't encountered before. We have three other eyewitnesses because there were two planes in the air. So each one had a weapon system officer and a pilot on board. And so Commander Fravor is really the only one we've heard from. But what they saw was the, exactly what you described, the, the tic-tac, as it's been called, about 40 feet in length, no control surfaces. It actually began to mimic Commander Fravor's flight pattern. He was circling down to get closer to the object because it was hovering over the ocean surface. And as he's circling down, it's circling up, following him. And when he describes his cuts the pie, like he's trying to cut across the circle to get behind it, kind of like a dogfight at this point, him and the other pilots describe this thing instantaneously taking off at a hypersonic speed unlike anything they'd ever seen. It would be subsequently where we've got the video that I think has been released and maybe is describing some of the movements that you mentioned. That would come when Commander Fravor and his wingmen landed back on the Nimitz and had another flight going up. And fighter pilots, I give them credit, man. Nothing but respect for those guys because right, yeah. they want to go chase the drama. <laughs> exactly. What happens mm -hmm. after all of that and some of the other witnesses that you talked to? Because on the deck there, they were reviewing video. They were looking over stuff. And that's where some of the witnesses, other witnesses come in. They saw some of this video going down. And then the other shocking part of this was that uh, all the data and the tapes and various systems that recorded these events, there were reports that a couple of guys showed up on a helicopter to confiscate all of that. Tapes might have been recorded over. This is like the next part of the mystery is what happened to all that quote unquote evidence. That was the big part of the mystery that has never really been discussed until that article came out, other than a good friend of mine who I met through this process, who's turned into a great friend, Dave Beatty, who put a YouTube documentary out and was able to find a lot of these guys. But outside that, it had never been discussed. And I think, in my opinion, is probably the most significant part of this story is indeed what you just described. Each one of these individuals did not tell the same story each had a piece of the story that came together that allowed me to track these people's movements and that two individuals who were not part of the group, 
flew aboard a helicopter, landed on the Princeton, seized all the top secret data that would have covered all the radar, the communications, everything. Flew to the USS Nimitz, seized all the data from the E-2 Hawkeye, which is the airborne defense planes, the planes with the big radar dish on top. And it's kind of in dispute, but possibly sees the original at FLIR videos of this. The video that has been released now almost two years ago is one minute and 16 second clip. And frankly, it's like every other UFO video I've ever seen. It's blurry black and white. And you're like, <laughs> right. hey, there's something there. Yeah. Um, they describe something far more dramatic and describe seeing this craft making acute right angle turns, stopping and then instantly going. Jason Turner, who was a supply technician aboard the USS Princeton, who just happened to be delivered supplies to the intelligence center room because he held a top secret clearance. And a, a friend of his said, hey, man, check this out. When he retells that story of what he saw in that video, it was remarkable for me because 15 years later, he's bothered by what he saw. So whatever he saw definitely wasn't normal. None of them described seeing something normal. And so I think that's the biggest part of the story that has just not been pushed out there enough is there's certainly preponderance evidence based on these witness testimonies, based on me and my own investigation, which included going out and tracking down a purely brand new witness who had never spoken out about it, knew the event had hit the news, but wasn't aware that his fellow sailors had spoken out. I gave him no background whatsoever, and he wished to remain anonymous because he holds a position still no longer in the military, but one that is of public trust. And he told me the exact same thing in terms of these guys showing up and taking top secret stuff. There was one point of contention, though, because Commander David Fravor did at some point cast some doubt on some of the accounts by some of these other witnesses. Mm -hmm. You were talking about the video and how the video that was released was only about a minute and 16 seconds long. But some of these other witnesses were saying that that video might have been longer, eight to 10 minutes or something, where they could see a lot more stuff in detail. Commander mm -hmm. Fravor on a podcast, I think he was on Joe Rogan's podcast, had said something about, well, you know, this is all BS. There wasn't anything mm -hmm. of that. Then there was no men in black suits that came and took up all of the evidence. And that was a big motivation for wanting to do this piece because I've been looking at the incident for a while, but I was frustrated because I said, nobody's mitigated this dispute. And I think it's a significant dispute. And so at the end of talking to everybody, which included some fighter pilots who were not in Commander Fravor's squadron, but they were F-18 pilots aboard the Nimitz during the incident who were able to break down in detail how these processes work with the tapes, who they're turned into, this kind of stuff. In my opinion, I walked away with a clearer picture to the fact the two different high probability events occur, which is another video was recorded that was longer. Whether Commander Fravor got a chance to see that or not, I don't believe he did at all. I don't believe Commander Fravor is lying at all. I believe his character and professionalism is beyond reproach. But I do believe that possibly what he was given back was the shortened version we see today. Right. And so when he saw it, he only saw the shortened version. The other possibility exists is there are some other classified different systems, um, video link systems in which the USS Princeton did have the capabilities of actually seeing and possibly recording through a data link a much longer version of it. Tim McMillan, retired police lieutenant, intelligence analyst, and contributor to Popular Mechanics. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.